Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Right, so um, good morning. We're working through the first few chapters of Acts here at CCM Heaton's at the moment, and it is it's great stuff because Jesus is alive. Can I get a whoop? Yeah, I know. It's new. It's exciting. That is the news in Acts, and it crackles through the whole book like electricity, which makes it tremendous fun and a great read because we see the Holy Spirit tearing it up through the lives of the apostles in Jerusalem. Judea, Samaria, and beyond. Because the apostles, they've seen Jesus, like literally a couple of weeks ago, um, and they've lived with him, and they've heard his teaching for themselves, and they've seen his dead, apparently defeated body, and then they saw him alive again. So Christ is risen is not a slogan for them. It's last Tuesday. And Christ is king, so they've got to tell people. Christ is Lord, and so they want people to know what that means for them. And the news that they have to share, it's, it's so unlikely, it's so absurd, it's so ridiculous that God backs it up with power from on high with the Holy Spirit. And so we see signs, we see wonders, we see hearts changed, we see lives transformed, repentance, love, glory, heaven breaking through, all in Jerusalem to start with. And it's amazing. And there's just a little sample of some of the, some of the verses from the first few chapters of Acts. And you can see that the, the word is spreading. It is great. Every day, God is adding to the number of people who have been saved. And we're up to about 5,000 people at the moment. So, to illustrate this growth, I wonder if anybody can tell me what this is. That's right, it's a nasturtium. It is a type of edible vine. It's, uh, it's quite an exciting time for this nasturtium right now, because I planted the seed several weeks ago. It's, you can still just about see the shell of the seed. It's germinated, it started growing, and now it is shooting upwards. Um, and eventually, it's going to carry on growing, it's going to get bigger and bigger, and by the end of August, hopefully, it'll look something like this. There we go. It's going to look something like that. But right now, it's little, it's tender, and it's vulnerable. And like all plants, this nasturtium needs light and it needs water. So let's give it a little water, pop it in the light, and hopefully God is going to give it growth. Maybe not. You probably won't see the difference in the next half hour. But it's a simple process. It's a wonderful process, and Reuben loves the watering can, so I probably should <laughs> give it a lot of water. So, but what happens if, that's, if that is all I do? Will it ever look like that picture? Why not? It's going to flop over. It, the growth isn't enough. It has to be sustainable. It needs some structure. It needs a trellis. Uh, it needs a bigger pot. Otherwise, it's going to collapse under its own weight, fall on the ground. It's never going to look like this big, beautiful plant like that. And that makes this seedling quite a lot like the community of believers at the beginning of Acts. Because 5,000 people is, a, is brilliant. It's a, it's a brilliant start, isn't it? But 
Jesus told his disciples to make disciples of all nations. And they've only, they're only just starting to get out of Jerusalem. They're a long way from the ends of the earth. Um, we can see that this church, it's really just a seedling. And it's the very, very first community of believers. And already, that seedling is starting to need a support. It's starting to need a trellis. Um, I think that, actually, this, this picture of the church as a vine, it's, it's a biblical one. Uh, it's a really good one as well. And it helps to answer, do people ever ask you, oh, what, what, what sort of church do you go to? What sort of church do you go to? And I've always thought, that question doesn't make much sense to me. And now I think I know the answer. It's because it's like saying, oh, look at that. Tell me about your nasturtium. And somebody starts off with going, well, it's got a polypropylene pot. It's 38 litres. I drilled 12 holes in the bottom and I put three bamboo poles and tied them together with twine. Um, it's kind of missing the point, isn't it? It makes no difference. Well, it, does, it makes some difference. But it's not the important thing, what type of pot it is and what type of support it's up against. Um, it obviously does make some difference, because if you put it in bamboo, eventually the bamboo will start to rot. If you try and tie it together with strawberry laces, they're just going to melt and dissolve and be useless. It's important stuff, but it's kind of beside the point. So we're going to look at one particular problem and one particular way that the church in Jerusalem needed a bit of support, a trellis. Uh, in those early days. And I think we can figure out the issue beforehand, uh, before we even get to chapter 6. Because look at, look at two different verses uh, that we've just read in the last couple of chapters of Acts. Firstly, the disciples are preaching and teaching and proclaiming God's kingdom all the time. Uh, and secondly, there are lots of people whose hearts have been transformed by the Spirit and are starting to give money in quite large quantities, to the apostles, to the body of believers, for redistribution. Can you see the problem? Can you see the tension? There's thousands of people in this church, and they're donating money and resources in a way that's never been seen before. And it takes time and effort and attention to spend that kind of money well. Here at, here at CCM, we've just had our first Give Big of the year. Um, we'd have two every year, and we raised an excellent £30,000. Thank you. For um, various gospel ministry causes. But money doesn't spend itself, and £30,000 is, is, is no use in a bank account, and it demands lots of administrative effort. We've got to collect it. We've got to document it. We've got to communicate it. We've got to share it. And we've got to choose between lots of different initiatives about how... We spend and invest that money. And we at CCM, we've got processes in place to make sure that we do spend that money responsibly. We've got um, a set of trustees who have that as an explicit job, and three of them are in this room. Um, it's part of the trellis that support, supports us as a church. But back in Jerusalem, there's, there's no trellis. There's nothing at the moment. And that money causes problems as Notorious B.I.G. put it. Um, here's chapter 6, verse 1. In these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, there was a grumbling by the Hellenistic Jews. It arose against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Okay, there's, there's a bit to unpack there. Firstly, notice this is the very first community of believers, and already... We've got cliques starting to form along cultural lines. 
Uh, and that, that's quite interesting, isn't it? In this case, the Hellenistic Jews, they're a group of Jews who are heavily influenced by Greek language and learning and thinking and culture. Uh, and the Hebraic Jews, well, they're, they're a bit more local in approach and they'd have spoken largely Aramaic. It's, it's not quite an ethnic difference, but it's kind of on that spectrum. We also have different languages and different ethnicities and different cultural backgrounds represented here in this church and we'll only stay together as a church if we make proactive effort to spend time with people not from our particular subculture way of life and way of thinking. It seems it's almost inevitable if we're not always aware of it that this kind of thing's going to happen. But I digress. We have Hellenistic Jews, we have Hebraic Jews, and the apostles, well, they're all Hebraic Jews. And little by little, the perception is growing that their people, in inverted commas, are getting favourable treatment. People are starting to murmur. It's not yet an open complaint, but it's more of a whisper going around the grapevine. And we're not told if there's any truth in this rumour. It might be, there might be, there might not. It's not really the point, because the, the perception of fairness is just as important as being fair in the first place. For example, parents, here's a question I found on Quora. If you need to divide a cake between two of your children, how should you cut it to ensure the best outcome? Now, have you heard of ChatGPT, the um, AI sensation, the robot that's tearing it up online? ChatGPT gives answers to all Quora questions, and ChatGPT gave its answer, and it said, you should cut the cake in half, creating two equal pieces, and I love this bit. This way, both children will receive an equal portion, and there should be no grounds for arguments or dissatisfaction. <laughs> uh, yeah, parents, apparently, that doesn't work. Apparently children are quite good at finding grounds for arguments and dissatisfaction, and it doesn't have anything to do with fairness. Um, so, but the point is, the perception is important as well. <laughs> so whatever exactly is going on, there is grumbling. It's about favouritism, and it's a problem, and if we leave it unchecked, this problem's going to grow. Slowly but surely, that grumbling is going to ripen, it's going to cause division, it's going to cause resentment, and the once beautiful vine is going to start getting ugly and blotchy and fall apart. It's a serious, serious matter. So let's look at how the apostles dealt with it, starting in chapter 6, verse 2. The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve at tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the wisdom and full of spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the service of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they so, and they chose Stephen, who was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, it has a lovely name. And Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These seven they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, 
it's a bit of an aside, but I really admire the way the apostles dealt with this because I think it's brave and I think it's loving and I think it shows real leadership and it's evidence of God's spirit at work in their lives because they don't try and hide anything, which is always our tendency, isn't it, to get defensive when there's grumbling about something involving us. They listen. They publicly acknowledge that there is a problem and they propose a sensible solution. And I mean, none of it's rocket science, but somehow in real life, just this way of approaching problems is really hard to do. Don't you wish more people addressed problems in this upfront, non-defensive, let's talk about it, public kind of way? We, we can certainly all learn from this leadership example. Um, but let's look in a bit more detail at the solution that they propose, because it boils down to a tale of two ministries. The key Greek word here is diakonia, which means service or ministry, which are exactly the same word etymologically. Do you remember Jesus saying, when Jesus says he came not to be served, but to serve? It's the same word, it's diakonia, that Jesus is talking about. It's where we get the word deacon from, and via the Latin translation, we get the word minister. And there are two ministries here in this passage. There's the ministry of the word in verse 4 and the ministry of tables in verse 2. The ministry of the word we're probably more familiar with. It's about proclaiming Jesus' kingdom, teaching people the things Jesus had taught them about the nature of that kingdom. It's the stuff that grows the vine, the plant. Um, And it's a spirit-filled ministry. We need God working in and through us to be effective in that. And the ministry of tables is about putting that teaching into practice. And it is also a spirit-filled ministry that also needs God working in and through it to be effective. But what exactly was it? I found something quite cool researching this. At least I thought it was cool, but your mileage may vary. Um, When the ancient Greeks think about tables... They think of two things. We, we tend to think, I think, of dining tables. If you talk about the table, you think, mm, that's where you put your knives and forks and you eat. And if you talk about serving at tables, you think waiters. Um, the Greeks did think about that as well, but they had one other thing in their heads. If you said the word table, they would think of bankers who sat behind tables. Which is strange to us, isn't it? But the association is so strong that even today, 2,000 years later, the Greek word for table is the same as the word for bank, trapeza. Uh, and it's on the front of the, the Bank of Greece, the trapeza of the Elodos. So I think this role, the ministry of tables, it is a service role for sure. It's in the service of God, it's in the service of church, and it's in the service of the most vulnerable members of the church, it's the distribution for the widows. But we could also consider it to be a a broad and an influential role and, dare I say it, a senior position within the congregation because they've got decisions about where, how to distribute these resources and how to spend money. And that's why there's this public commissioning ceremony for the seven. They're chosen with prayer. They're chosen with the laying on of hands. Everyone is to know that these seven men have authority to fulfill those particular duties in the life of the church. So it's small wonder that the apostles insisted that people chose their best men for this job. So um, here's the question for you. 
Do you think the ministry of tables, is it trellis work? Is it building a structure for the vine? Or is it vine work? Is it about growing the vine? What we reckon? Trellis, why? Supporting the growth that's already there. Anybody want to make a counter case? I think it's a trick question. Um, there's a lot of trellis work in the duties of the seven. They've got, they've got to put systems, they've got to put processes in place, they've got to make sure the daily distribution is fair and equitable and seen to be so, and those processes are trellis work for sure. But I think this, this ministry, the ministry itself that they're in charge of, the daily social support initiative that makes sure that everyone's needs are met, well, that's something that was completely unheard of at the time. That's the flowers and the fruit coming off the vine, and it's part of the way that the vine shows off to the world that it's bursting with life, bursting with vitality. It doesn't help in growing the vine, what it kind of does, but it is proof of the truth that Jesus is working in and through the church. That's what the flowering and the fruiting is all about, and that's why Jesus talks a lot about being fruitful. So there is, there's lots to do. In the life of a Christian community, there's, there's vine work, there's trellis work, and there's being fruitful. Uh, and that brings me on to the first main thing I want us to take away from this little passage today, and that is that spirit-filled ministries are for everyone. We're focusing on two today because they're the two in Acts chapter 6, but in truth, a minister is anyone who spends their time serving because of the gospel in whatever way and in whatever context. And that means identifying a need and meeting it with humility and dedication. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, we're all called to do this, to minister to the people around us, to be servants. And God fills us all with his spirit to empower us for that work. And that's not just Sunday mornings, and it's not just heaven. It's the whole of our lives. But how that plays out is going to be really different for every single one of us. So the point isn't to say what it should look like. For example... One key ministry that many of us share is the ministry to our families. To love and serve our children, to love and serve our siblings, to love and serve our spouses, to love and serve our parents. And that is a huge one. And for some of us, attempting to show God's love to certain family members could be entirely all-encompassing right now, for whatever reason. So let's, let's flip the, the angle. How can, how can we help other people love and serve their families. Maybe you've got older children or, or your children are grown up and you could take some of the newer parents under your wing and share some of the things that you found helpful when it comes to sharing your faith with your children or introducing your children to sensitive subjects. There was a great example of exactly this that happened on a WhatsApp chat uh, just a few days ago with tips being shared on how to talk about hell with your six-year-old, uh, which is, I believe, not easy. Um, and maybe we can help and serve by look, getting a cup of tea with somebody who we know is getting, going through a difficult time and could do with chatting it through slowly and praying about it. Because ministry doesn't have to be rocket science, and a ministry of tea and cake is an important and valuable one, and one that needs God's spirit as well, just as much as any of the others. There are many other sorts of service. Philip, Stephen, the rest of the seven... Maybe you're like them. You've got wisdom that can be applied to systems and structures and processes and protocols. Uh, maybe you're one of those people who I don't understand who's really good at making lists and ticking things off them. 
uh, maybe you should be helping design and maintain the trellis that supports the life of the church because it has to always be changing with the, with the vine. God has given you and me a unique set of gifts and skills and experience and part of living life in all its fullness, part of living the life that Jesus has promised us is learning what those gifts and skills and experiences are and learning how to use them for his glory. Instagram tells us we have to live our best life. And Jesus tells us we do that by serving. Just as a little aside before I move on, you might notice that I haven't mentioned rotors at all in the context of serving in church. And that's deliberate. Lots of us are on some kind of rotor uh, or other at church. Words, set up, preaching, worship, welcome, crash. Those things are really important because otherwise we couldn't do what we do and meet here this morning and listen to the word and be challenged and changed. But I want us to think of our ministries not just as a kind of list of hats that we wear and put on and take off again. Uh, It's part of who we are in Christ and Sunday morning is just one little part of that. So let's let's go back to the passage because I think there's one more thing to notice and that is that the insight that the apostles have they notice that these two ministries, the ministry of the word and the ministry of the tables, they always tend to compete with each other for time and attention. The apostles realize that if, as a leadership team, they try to strike a balance and do both at the same time, well, maybe they wouldn't fail per se, but they probably would end up sliding into spending most of their time on the administration side, because managing the church in Jerusalem with its 5,000 members will take a lot of time and energy and effort and attention. Dealing with the finances, as we've seen, liaising with the synagogue and temple authorities, finding spaces big enough for everybody to meet in, that sort of thing would take up all their energy. And for them, for the apostles, that would actually be a sinful thing to do, because Jesus told them to go and spread the gospel to the ends of the earth, it would be disobedient for them to put down the watering can. So what they do is decide not to do that. That's why they're so keen to appoint these seven helpers, so keen to do it publicly, uh, so keen to make them gospel partners. And we find here that the church flourishes seemingly as a direct result of this separation of responsibilities structurally that has happened. And that brings me to the second main thing that we've got to take away from this episode, and that is to not forget about the vine. Because the tension between ministries and responsibilities in Acts 6 is not unique to the first church. It's been the norm in every church ever since too. Here's roughly how it tends to go. Leaders of whatever sort, church leaders, children's leaders, worship leaders, small group leaders, people engaged in word ministry, they start off full of a God-given passion for people, for growing the vine, for showing more and more of the beauty and majesty of Jesus and seeing lives get changed. And as they start, they see uh, more and more of that and do it. But as the years go by, it's not that the passion's gone away, the passion's still there, but they find themselves increasingly getting bogged down and hemmed in by the concerns and responsibilities of the day-to-day running to the point that they often feel like they don't have time anymore, no time to pray. That's the kind of canary in the coal mine, to use horrible business jargon. No time to study, no time to just rest and be with God, soaking in his love and his grace, and certainly no time to invest in sharing life with anyone new. 
I'm, I'm not for a moment implying that this is what's happening to anybody in particular here at CCM, but it's definitely a general pattern that is always a danger. And so it's one that we as a community need to be aware of. I've got a really simple example of how not to do it, because I can remember um, a couple of years ago having a conversation with Andy Brownlee, who's our site leader. Um, some of you will have been to our church uh, on bonfire night for a church social. Uh, we've done them for a couple of years now. And when the first time we did it, it was Andy's idea. He said, why don't you have people around for bonfire night? That'd be a great way to uh, help the church uh, get together as a community. And Becky was very pregnant at the time, and we were feeling pretty stretched, uh, and it was about three weeks away. And we said to Andy something along the lines of, that's a great idea, we'd absolutely love that. Uh, we'd love to host people, we can certainly make a fire. That's, we can do that, we can cook some sausages but like, can't do anything else. <laughs> so uh, let's do it, but you're gonna have to be the one making it happen. And that's what we said to Andy. So we, saw, we told Andy we needed him to buy the fireworks, be responsible for setting off the fireworks, advertise the event, tell people about it, come early to help us set it up, stay late to help us set it down again. And although, I think he quite likes buying and setting off fireworks. That's, it's not really the point. We treated him like making sure an event runs smoothly. Uh, we treated him like making sure events run smoothly is his job. Um, and of course, if we do that, that kind of thinking will lead to really slick, well-run events. If everyone keeps on thinking, um, it's the, the professional's responsibility. But it, it doesn't lead to the spread of the gospel. It leads to a really nice trellis but no, fine. If we'd been thinking about Act 6, we'd have been thinking about ways to get other people to come and help us make the event happen. Because we need to protect Andy's time, because he needs to pray, he needs to preach, he needs to teach, he needs to equip us as a church to share the gospel. And some of these things would be distractions, are distractions for him. Uh, that's his actual role as an elder and as a site leader. So it's on us as the congregation to pull together to make sure he can concentrate on it and not try and dump chores on him that we don't want to do. Um, that's a bad example. Um, I'm sure hopefully we can think of good examples as well. There's one other way that we can neglect the vine, um, and that is to think that it's only Andy's job. Because as we, as we move on in the book of Acts, we discover that there's asymmetry. It'd be wrong for the apostles to engage in the ministry of tables because it would inevitably distract them from the life of the vine. Uh, but the opposite is not true. And the next couple of chapters go and prove that because we've got Stephen and we've got Philip. And the next couple of chapters focus on a couple of opportunities that these men have to proclaim the good news about Jesus. And spoiler, they take them with both hands so even if your main ministry, the main way that you serve in your day-to-day -day life is entirely focused on the trellis, you're a trellis painter, uh, so to speak, we've got to remember that we are all still vine workers as well. God can, will, and does give us opportunities to speak his truth into people's lives. And that, I think, brings us on to prayer week, which is happening next week, which I think is a brilliant thing and an excellent way for us to reset as individuals and as a church. It gives us a chance to 
dedicate a bit of time to the things that are really important. And according to Acts chapter 6, that is prayer. That is one of the things that the apostles needed. Real time, essentially, paid time, hours in their calendar, given over to praying. Uh, and that's really difficult because a lot of us really struggle to find hours in our calendar. Um, but see if you can find half an hour this week to go to one of those prayer meetings or four hours to go to the Friday night, which is really great. Because we need God. We need God to grow the vine. We need God to help us spread the gospel to the ends of Heaton Moor, Heaton Mersey, and maybe even Heaton Chapel. No offence to Heaton Norris. <laughs>